Welly, welly, well, well. Droogs and devotchkas. This is your humble friend and narrator, Alex. That's large to you. We are doing the Kubrick experience. Welcome to the Kubrick's universe. You are invited. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in and welcome back to Kubrick's Universe. We're speeding headlong into 2022 and away from 2021. So we're taking a moment to look back and briefly celebrate this lovely little show, which we love bringing you. We started Kubrick's Universe four years ago, with our first episode being released onto an unsuspecting world in January 2018. During this time, we've produced 50 episodes and have spoken with over 60 guests. Some, of course, are still to be aired. There have been many highlights that we will never forget while speaking to cast and crew members from every one of Kubrick's feature films. Apart from one, I'm looking at you, Spartacus. Open your mouth, Spartacus. Here's to 2022, which will be our fifth year in business. And we can assure you that we have many more fantastic guest interviews to look forward to. Right now, as we continue to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the release of A Clockwork Orange, we are very excited to share with all our listeners a very special interview that we conducted with Alex DeLarge himself, Mr. Malcolm McDowell. Hi, hi, hi you know, many actors, if not most, can play out their entire careers without even playing one iconic role. Malcolm McDowell achieved two within his career's first half decade. And if Mick Travis in Lindsay Anderson's If and Alex DeLarge in A Clockwork Orange have cast a long shadow over everything that he's done since, McDowell has always been cheerfully honest about his priorities. Regular work is far more important to him than consistent artistic brilliance. In any case, as he told The Guardian in 2004, it's easy to be good in a Robert Altman film. You try being good in Cyborg 3. He was born Malcolm Taylor in Leeds on the 13th of June, 1943, and was educated at Cannock Public School before turning down a university place in favor of working in his father's Liverpool pub, followed by a stint as a traveling salesman. 
But the acting bug bit shortly afterwards, and he joined a touring repertory company, taking on his mother's maiden name in the process. Moving to London, he worked briefly with the Royal Shakespeare Company, secured a few minor television roles, and then joined the Royal Court Theatre just in time to be asked to audition for If. We spoke to Malcolm in July 2021. Where are you? I am I am in uh, Lancashire, um, East oh, Lancashire. Well, I never would have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> Whereabouts? I mean, uh, a little village called Barrowford that's near Nelson, uh, near uh, Blackburn, Burnley. Kind of, but but near yeah, the border. Great. I'm only fa- I'm five minutes away from the uh, Lancashire Yorkshire border. Wow, that's Myra Hindley territory, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, the Moors. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I. It's an amazing. Uh, I did this movie, Oh Lucky Man, and we shot up there on the Moors. Yes, of traveling. course. Yeah, it would appear. From what I know about Stephen's uh, whereabouts, is that where you were born, Malcolm, was uh, about mm. thirty miles away in uh, Horsforth and in, in Horsforth in Leeds. Yeah, look, I don't remember anything about it because it was during the war, mm. and um, my father then was stationed to Bridlington to uh, an aerodrome called—I uh, think it was called Griffield, um, which. Um, you know, he he was in bomber command as a navigator. Mm. And my mother and my aunt, the two sisters, bought uh, a boarding house, sort of uh, a seaside hotel called the mm. Fars Lee. And that is where uh, I have my first memories of being, well, nearly drowning on a beach in Bridlington, of all places which is a place, actually, that David Hockney lived in for a long time. Yeah, he went back to Bridlington. Amazing. And, and didn't Mike, uh, Mike Kaplan produce a David Hockney documentary back in the early 70s, A, a Bigger Splash? He didn't, he didn't produce it. He uh, distributed it. That's right. He yeah. actually um, he put it out as a distributor. It was called A Bigger Splash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it's actually a, a wonderful. It's a sort of a sort of documentary film, but a really well done, very well directed, mm. and um, Mike loved it, and he uh, he he paid for it to be exhibit exhibited, you know, because none of the mainstream people would touch it, of course. Mm. No, it was a very nice movie that about basically about all David's, uh, you know, the people he painted, you know, all the cohorts mm-hmm. around in his, um, in, in his circle at the time, you know, in, in London, I suppose, but it's a very, very lovely film. And then I think of course, then the stuff, the, the Mike did the ad, which was rather beautiful. I think he did the ad, which was the, the painting of, you know, one of the swimming pools. And of course, a bigger splash is what it, the title was so it was great and you know he hotney did these pools in california which are a very famous um set of um paintings that he did when he was in 
I guess Santa Monica or somewhere, maybe Palm Springs. I'm not sure where he was, but hmm. let, let's start on our journey of Stanley. <laughs> well, we we have other questions. Of course, we're interested beyond Stanley, interested in you and um, you're amazing. I mean, it's an amazing career, suffice it to say. Well, you mean I'm still standing. Amazing in that way as well, but an amazing and storied career. And, I mean, I've been a fan for I can't tell you how long. So, uh, yeah, it's a real pleasure, uh, to say the least. Um, well, let me touch back on uh, Mike Kaplan. And you did mention Oh, Lucky Man, yeah. which is just a fantastic, fantastic film, um, to say the least. Now, Mike Kaplan is, of course, a good friend of yours, and he did help us set this up. Uh, in the documentary, O Lucky Malcolm, you told a really funny story about Mike and his hair. So my question is, did you play a lot of practical jokes on Mike? Oh, yeah. It's so easy. It's so easy. <laughs> you know, um, I got him a real good one because um, he's he's a, a poster collector, you know, from the golden era. Well, well, actually, every era, but the golden era of Hollywood, Mike started collecting posters and in fact he assembled probably one of the greatest collections of old movie posters you know on the planet mm. and in fact he tried to get the academy and they should have bought them from him but you know for whatever reason they didn't they wanted him to give them you know but you know <laughs> can't afford yeah. to do that so anyway um just for a joke uh, on a whim, I called him up and I said, my name is Arthur Singapore and I want to talk to you about posters. He went, hello, <laughs> yes. And I went, I'm looking for a poster from James Blondell. He went, uh, uh, James Blondell? Um, oh my God. Um, I go, were you by any chance? at the poster show in New York last week. He goes, e e yes, I was. And I said, I think I recognize you because are you rather balding? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, what? There was a long pause. He went, I I'm just thinning a little bit. And I went, oh, yes, I think I recognize you. And he never got it. He never got it. I went, John Blondell, John, John Blondell. And, and just by chance, he just bought a Joan Blondell poster. And it was so from left field, you know. So I, I literally wound him up about this and went on about it, that I was going to buy it and that he had to sell it to me. And he said, well, where are you from? I went, well, that's an impertinent question. I'm actually from Pakistan. On the border of Bangladesh. He goes, oh, oh, do they have posters? I went, oh, yes, yes, yes. Very, very nice posters. Yeah, very, very, very beautiful. Beautiful cinemas. Beautiful. Art deco. Very nice. Left by the British pigs. He went, what? And I said, left by the British pigs. <laughs> and he completely bought the whole fucking thing you know it's great <laughs> Mike is a bit gullible but you know he's he's a great friend we've been through it every which way and he, ne and he never caught on he never caught on to that one 
And he never caught on to that one, no. And, and in fact, I didn't tell him about the, you know, the, the rubbing of his nails, the friction and all. I didn't tell him about that, but I tricked him about that for, um, I think, 20 years. And I suddenly went, did I ever tell you, by the way, that that was all bullshit? <laughs> he went, what? Uh... What? <laughs> And you're such yeah. good friends, and yet he didn't recognize one of your impressions, your accent voices. No, and, it, and, and to be honest, they're really not that good. But, <laughs> but he gets so into the story. Mm. And, you know, the thing is, you've always, when you pull a joke like you've always got to find something, a kernel of truth. Mm-hmm. And if you can get a kernel of truth, then you're off to the races. Then right. he believes everything. I called him once. And um, I called him up and he wasn't there. So he had these fucking cats called Kitty Wart and um, <laughs> Kitty Wart. I forgot the other one. Anyway, I called it Halloween. I called him up and I went, Mike, yeah, yeah. I'm going to fucking do you <laughs> with a fucking cat. Bring those fucking cats up and fucking ward and the fucking and and and, and, and click. I just, I thought we well, you know, I kind of let him know who it was. No, right. he called the neighbors, the fucking uh, security watch, your home security watch people, oh and he God. had the fucking cat guarded. And oh my <laughs> God, you're kidding? What? You knew it was me. He goes, no, what? I mean, he's That's so brilliant. fucking gullible. Yeah, well, you need that too on uh, the receiving end. <laughs> I don't. I can't do it anymore because I don't want to give him a heart attack. He's getting too old, you know. Right, too. right. <laughs> it would be that terrible. That is hilarious. Too. That is hilarious. Well, later yeah. on, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, of course, Stanley was famously a practical joker and, we got a question for you about that, but let me ask you a few about, of course, A Clockwork Orange, uh, if that's all right. Yeah, that's the whole reason where. Oh. Yes, and, uh, um, you know, I have other questions for you outside of Stanley, of course, but so to get to the meat of the matter, um, it is, of course, well known that Kubrick wanted you to play Alex after seeing, you know, your really amazing performance in Lindy Anderson's brilliant film, If. Um, what do you remember about hearing from and then meeting Kubrick for the first time? I got a call from my agent who said, this director, Stanley Kubrick, is trying to get hold of you. I went, well, uh, does he have my number? He goes, oh, can I give it to him? I went, yeah, of course. Now, I kind of got a little confused because I actually thought it was Stanley Kramer for a split second. It's a very different animal entirely. But yes. um, And then I, I was shooting a movie in Boreham Wood at EMI, the last th throes of the British film industry, being directed by Brian Forbes called The Raging Moon from a screenplay by Sheila Delaney. It was just it was a lot of fun to shoot, to do. And um, Stanley called me and said, could he see me the next day? I said, I'm at Boreham Wood. He goes, well, I live in Boreham Wood. I said, oh, great. So I could see you in the lunch hour. He said, great. 
So I got my driver, Tommy Lee, was this great Cockney driver that I had in those days, who kind of did all my, you know, every time I worked, I, 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 Tommy would come with me. So we drove over to Stanley's house called Abbott's Mead. Went in, he took me into a tiny little um, kind of a study. And I walked through like the living room, but there were all these sheets up on the walls covering, I don't know what, whatever he had on the walls. Um, of course, later I was to find out it was all stuff, uh, you know, about locations. But it, but I think all that stuff must have been uh, about Napoleon because, um, you know, he'd put Clockwork Orange aside when he decided he couldn't cast it. He couldn't mm -hmm. find anyone that he wanted to play the lead. So um, anyway, I went into this thing. We just chit-chat for 45 minutes. And I said, well, I, I've got to get back because I'm first up. Um, is it, and I said, is there anything particular you want to see me about? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> fuck, he dragged me out of the center. He said, yeah. Now, I could see a certain reluctance on his part to divulge the actual name of the book that he was about to give me, um, which sort of amused me because, you know, of course, he had to give it to me because I had to read it. And but so he's, he eventually said, have you ever heard of uh, Clockwork Orange? And I went, no. <laughs> he went, really? Really? It, it's it's uh it's quite a cult book. I went, well, I'm sorry, I haven't heard of it. He goes, well, um, I'd like you to read it and call me. So I said, okay, great. Okay, thanks, Stanley. And off I went. So um, I go back to work. I work. And uh, that night, I, I started reading the book. And um, God, it was um, a little struggle to get through it. Mm -hmm. uh, for the first time, you know, with all the language and all and that, having to go back to all that, yeah. And um, but you know, so anyway, I got through it. Took me a couple of days to read it, and I thought, well, I, I better read it again because I don't even didn't really take anything in that much. It was just a, a little overwhelming. It's and then the second time I read it, I, you know, it went pretty much cover to cover. And I realized what an amazing book it was mm. and what an amazing subject and what brilliant ideas and imagination that Anthony Burgess had. Read the language, read the whole envisaging a, you know, a futuristic world somewhat futuristic anyway mm -hmm. um and i thought well i better read it again you know I mean, it's, by this time i realized this is not stanley kramer <laughs> so um and i better be on my toes so i read it the third time now this all took a week so he i didn't call him back for a week and okay. he must have thought i never thought about this he must have thought what the fuck is he doing? <laughs> I mean, uh, but, but, but again, I was shooting another movie. So, you know, my concentration was more or less on that. Of course. But anyway, um, I called him back 
and um, oh, but in the mean, yeah, in the meantime, I think I met Ian Home oh. on the street in Notting Hill Gate, and I was a scrapbooker with Ian, and we were friends. Although I didn't see him much socially uh, anymore, but um, and it had been a few years since. Well, I guess we were at Stratford together in 65. Now we're talking 1970. Okay. So five years I've seen him. So I see him on the street and we, you know, it was like old friends, you know. And what are you doing? I said, I, I, I don't know, I think I'm going, I've been offered this thing from Stanley Kubrick, you know, and, and I could see him visibly quite shaken. <laughs> and so what, what, what's up? He goes, yeah, I know that bastard. I went, <laughs> really? What, what do you mean? He goes, I spent 18 fucking months with him because he wanted me to do Napoleon. Wow. And he goes, and then, and then I couldn't even get him on the phone after having talked to him every day. Mm-hmm. How are you kidding? He was, no, dropped. Like, I mean, I just couldn't get him on the phone. I never spoke to him ever again. He never called me to say it's off or I haven't got the money or just nothing. Mm. And, um, I, and that was a bit of a warning about really what, where Stanley was at. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, but, but of course I didn't heed it at the time because I was young, full of a gung ho and, um, you know, I was on top of the world kind of thing. Mm. And um, and I and I I said, well, that, fuck, that's terrible. I was really upset with him because in home I considered, you know, the best actor at Stratford in that company, and um, he was an amazing actor. You know, oh, end of story. Yeah, you know, one, one of our very great, great, great actors, and, and you know, I worked with pretty much all the. Uh, yeah, he was up there with, you know, Olivier and Gilgood, and he was certainly up there with that. In that, you know. Anyway, so so I was a little bit, uh, I, I I was crestfallen for him, mm. and I thought, wow, I wonder whether he's going to do the same to me. So I was a little bit. Um, anyway, I called him, and. Um, I'm not sure whether that was in the middle of that week or may have been later, but uh, not quite sure of the timeline, but I know it was around the same time. I suppose it must have been after I'd accepted doing it. But anyway, uh, anyway, I called Stanley and said, I, I read that book, Stanley. And he said, yes. And I said, well, now, I, so I must have... Um, had the meeting with uh, just the coincidental meeting with Ian on the street because I said to Stanley, um, well, it's a great, this is just an incredible book, Stanley. And you, I don't even know how you're going to shoot this, but um, he goes, well, uh, you know, I, I, I've got a few ideas. I was, I'm sure you have. And um, I said, look, are you offering me the part or not? And there was a long pause, and he just said, yes. I went, what? Yes. I went, okay. Oh, now, he didn't want to offer it to me on the <laughs> phone. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I thought, I, 
I thought, well, I better, I better get to the bottom of this because now Ian's just told me he fucked him over. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's prompted me to be very cocky and say to a director of world renown, are you offering me this or not? Right. And, um, so he said, yes. So um, he said, come out. So I, I spent the next, I think it was six months going out to Stanley's. Oh, I don't know. At one point it was every day, you know, he'd send the car. Mm-hmm. He'd call me up and say, I've already, I've set the cars on its way. Uh, and one time I went, wait a minute, the, uh, my doorbell's going. I went, yeah, it's the car. <laughs> I get in the car, go back. to. The, I arrive at his place and he goes, well, that was quick. Um, that guy, he must've been driving really fast. And I went, no, I think there was just not that much traffic. And he said, no, I'm going to complain to the car company about that because that's <laughs> putting at risk. I went, Stanley, I don't think there was any problem with the speed of the car. I think just no traffic or zoom through. Anyway, he was like that, though. Yeah. These six months, you uh, recall, those were all at Abbott's Mead, I, I, uh, yes. I assume. And, and, of course, in retrospect, this is where he did his directing. Well, it was very much, and I didn't even realize it at the time. Um, it was very much a collaboration because every single facet of that thing was a collaboration between him and I talking it through. Uh, I mean, for instance, one instance, uh, walking me to my car after dinner, which by the way, consisted of takeaway Chinese. And then I had to, had to hear about Stanley's theory that all these J- Chinese waiters were probably spies. <laughs> I, you're living in Borum Wood. What right. the fuck? <laughs> but that uh, was his theory. That's priceless. And, you know, maybe in retrospect, he was right. <laughs> Who knows? But... um it was quite amusing. You know, he was always amusing. And I'd say, I can't help notice, Stanley, that you eat hot and, you know, hot and sour chicken here and then, and a sweet and sour chicken, and then ate the dessert along with the savory mm-hmm. and the sweet and sour pork, whatever it was. And I said, mm. wow, Stanley, I notice. He goes, well, it all goes down the same way. Of course, I understand <laughs> that. But um, you have a thing called taste buds. <laughs> um, to organize your tastes, you know, and usually a sweet thing would come at the end. He goes, this is how Napoleon ate. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's walking me to the car. So I said, I think I said to him, well, what the hell am I going to wear, Stanley? I mean, what, what uh, you know, this is before Milena was really on board, I think. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, I don't know. And we're just standing there, you know, it was, it was dark already. Uh, and he said, um, I don't know. What do you got? I go, what have I got? <laughs> I went, Stanley, what have I got? I've got jeans, T-shirts. <laughs> I got nothing. I mean, futuristic. I mean, uh, all I've got is my cricket gear in the car. He goes, well, let me see it. He goes, go on, what's this? I said, well, that's the protector. He goes, wear it on the outside. Mm-hmm. And that, is exactly how the whole look of Alex and the Droogs 
became a reality, and it was my cricket gear. And the cod piece was the protector. Mm -hmm. And then you've heard all these stories before because they're out there. No, it's okay. I mean, one thing I just was going to say earlier is you have to forgive us Mm -hmm. if, you know, we do cover some familiar ground because I think a lot of folks who listen to our podcast are well ensconced in Kubrick lore, but, you know, we don't want to omit uh, people who are younger people who are learning about him for the first time and you know that's that's kind of cool feeling like we're helping to bring them into the fold as oh it were. yeah yeah of course no because he's one of the most fascinating fascinating and extraordinary personalities that the film business ever 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 uh, pushed up you know yeah, developed yeah, yeah I mean without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt, there was, he is totally unique. Now, you can say, yeah, but he, he's anti-humanist in this and that. And I'm, no. I'm probably, uh, you have a good cause. But the thing about Stanley is he's made these classic movies in totally different genres, which no other director that I can think of has ever done. And, of course, um, technically, there's just no one that even comes within a thousand miles of Stanley. I mean, no one could have done 2001 except him. And I'll tell you, there would have been no Star Wars without that film. No argument. There'd have been none of these movies, none of them. That made um, science fiction, you know, before, before 2001, science fiction was um, Flash Gordon and cardboard sets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Stanley's whole thing was this, you know, philosophical story, you know, this amazing, amazing story. I mean, how, the, how would anyone today get the money for a movie like that? Right. And, and, you'd, and the pitch meeting would be so much fun, you know, saying, yeah, but no, nobody actually speaks for 45 minutes, you know, and, and they would go, what? It's a bit like, um, you remember Danger Man, the TV show? They Mm -hmm. did that on Danger Man, I think. You know, they did an episode, it may have been the pilot, I can't even remember, but that nobody spoke for like half an hour, most of the show. Yeah. I did read that uh, it was A Clockwork Orange, which was the first film classified as science fiction to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Which is interesting because now it's de rigueur. I mean, the the Academy is always going to have something akin to sci-fi. The, the Academy so... wouldn't. The, the Academy wouldn't. The mem- most of the members wouldn't watch the movie because it was an X. Right. So, uh, and at the time, um, late sixties, seventies, early seventies, the Academy was made up of people that literally most of them were over seventy-five. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, most of them are sort of, I think, required a membership from their dead husbands. Right, right, right. Um, because when I met them, I thought, fucking hell, what a terrible <laughs> lot of people these are. Yeah, and they were from a generation that would have generally regarded science fiction films as stance. Yeah, disregarded them entirely, out of hand. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, there's something interesting... Uh, that you touched upon, and it comes up often in 
you know, discussions of Stanley with regards to whether he was a misanthrope or whether he had a different perspective on humanity and perhaps the course he wanted for it. I'm just stumbling on this quote I have here um, when he said, uh, you don't have to make Frank Capra movies to like people. Capra presents a view of life as we all wish it really were, but I think you can still present a darker picture of life without disliking the human race. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course that's true. And, um, but it's, it's, um, Stanley's depiction of, you know, mainly people in authority. Um, but it's not unique. I mean, look, it, it's, um, I mean, it was very interesting because, you know, really the script uh, was very skeleton like. Mm-hmm. I mean, a few bits of dialogue, which were cribbed from the book, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, I literally had the book with me at all times. Um, and when we came to a, se- a new sequence, I would read in the book. And I was able to say, no, 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 Stanley, no, 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 no. You got that mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, this mm-hmm. is, uh, and he'd look at me. I, and I go, no, 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 this is this is what it says in the book. And he, he go, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. yeah, all right. Um, so, but you know, um, it, it was an extraordinary challenge, you know, to work with him. Mm-hmm. Because as I found out as we went on, that, um, you know, he expected you to come in and um, come up with... Uh, come up with something that, that he could shoot and he would only shoot magic. Right. You know, it was a sort of joke, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, before the singing in the rain sequence, you know, we, we sat around for four or five days. <laughs> the camera did not turn. Um, I mean, um, I was so bored just sitting there mm. that when he... I was sitting up these stairs. In fact, there are some there's some uh, photographs, stills of me sitting on these steps in this house, which are the steps that Patrick McGee gets kicked down when we first mm-hmm. rush in. Okay. And um, as he passed me, he just said, "Can you dance?" Now he'd not said anything to me for four days, five days. I think it was on the fifth day. He suddenly, because I kept saying, look, you've got this written here. They come in and, well, it was written, it was written in the book too. So it's not Stan's fault, but I said, and we had just shot the end. Now the end, we hit it out of the park. You know, it was, we all knew that was brilliant. Whatever you can say about the movie, the end is just fucking magical. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, in the hospital bed, and mm-hmm. the transfer, the transformation back, and that mm-hmm. whole thing was, um, you know, we just knew that that was a home run. Right. So, and it was in a certain, it was a heightened style. And um, so to come back now and 
have a sort of uh, realism, a sort of realistic uh, was was um, just really not going to cut it. Right. Do you feel that you were given a certain amount more freedom by whatever process allowed you guys to discard the skeleton script and work from the copies of the book you carried on you? Or the other way around? No, I mean, um, look. For you as an actor, I mean. Oh, by that time, I didn't mind. By that time, you know, I was so into it that any little thing, we'd just have a good laugh, you know. I mean, the whole feeding thing at the end. Now, we just shot that, too. So, um, you know, that was sort of... um, improv you know me opening my mouth like that right um Brilliant. a because it, it it's like a, it, it is it, it just says everything about the film in one simple move and the reason i did it is that anthony sharp who played the minister of the inferior had to have this long speech of wrapping up the movie and i could see stan when he's supposed to be cutting my steak and I could see Stanley thinking, I'm, "I've got. To, I'm going to have to cut this." Mm-hmm. I could see that going on. I knew. I knew every move. I was always a few steps ahead all the time about that because I knew him so well by this time. And so to hurry him up, I gave him that quick, you know, cuckoo in the net kind of thing, mm-hmm. and which. Hurried him up, and by the time I saw Stanley in my periphery vision, he had a handkerchief stuffed in his mouth. He was laughing so hard. <laughs> and, of course, I knew that that, and Anthony Sharp knew that that was the end of that. So right, right. Brilliant. He wasn't too happy. He wasn't too happy. But so so it was It was a heightened style. You know, it, it not, not realism. It was real, but not realistic. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important distinction. I think many fans would have to concur with that. That's a perfect assessment. Mm-hmm. It, you know, everything was pushed to the right to the limits of believability. Yes, yes. He, uh, well, I remember la- laughing with him and saying, "No wonder you like Peter Sellers." Right. You know, he'd just do funny voices and, and yeah, because he'd say, "Show me, show me." Mm-hmm. And and when I asked him rather naively before we started shooting, um, because I. I was used to working with, you know, very nurturing directors like Lindsay Anderson. And I said, Stanley, well, how do you direct? And he goes, well, I don't know. He goes, "Um, listen, I I don't know what I want, but I do know what I don't want. Yes. Never a truer word spoken. Mm -hmm. Sums him up to a T. Brilliant. Absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned uh, perhaps there was something you just shared that you, you don't know if you've shared it before or not. And at the risk of asking uh, about a story you've told oh so many times, uh, the scene, the second scene, when the Droogs meet the drunken singing tramp under the subway at Wandsworth. Oh, yeah. I just have to ask, is there, are there, any, is there anything or are there uh, any particular memories that you've not been asked about or haven't shared over the years about the shooting of that scene? Well, you know, that was a reshoot. 
originally that scene was supposed to be uh, it was it was actually a tragic story uh it was willie russell um mm-hmm. i'd seen willie russell i cast uh, a few of the key parts mainly warren clark mm-hmm. who he he'd see i didn't know this seen on a video and said no <laughs> and i went i kept saying why am i still you know, auditioning guys for this part when Warren Clark's, it was written for him. Right. I mean, it, it's Warren. I mean, go see him in this play called Home. You'll see. I mean, I, I was really got frustrated with him mm-hmm. because he called me in to read with the other contenders and they, they were terrible. I mean, they weren't terrible. They just weren't right. Right. Anyway, um, so uh, Willie Russell was also in a, a, a Lindsay Anderson directed play called oh God, it's about the tent going up. Um, in, in celebration? No, no, not in celebration. Uh, it'll come to me anyway. They they go in and uh, all the workforce build this marquee, and at the end of the first act, the whole thing magically just billows up into this huge marquee that fills the stage and the contractor it's called. And uh, Willie Russell played the old guy, you know, and, and I said to Stanley, he, this is, he's just a marvelous actor. You should get him for the old guy. So originally, and in the book, it was an old guy who was leaving the library with these rare and wonderful books. And Alex and the the Droogs set upon him, grab hold of these rare and beautiful books and start ripping them up right. and throwing the pieces in the air and going, there's a mackerel of a cornflake for you. That's the only line I remember. I <laughs> thought it was a great line. It is. And so we shot that amongst these great big, like plastic ducks that were, in Aylesbury Town Square or something, they had these absolutely hideous plastic ducks that were 20 feet high or something like that in Aylesbury, in the, in the center of the town. And that's where we did it. And, you know, um, Willie was, uh, was 80 odd and he was extremely good. And then when we came to do a few, a little while later, we came to do the scene of retribution, which is in the library mm. when Alex comes in to get solace and to read the big book. Right. And he goes, I know you. And he gets all these old stooges in the library to attack him. <laughs> so that's what happened. It was, you know, it was uh, more what the book was. But Stanley didn't trust Willie to know the lines and you know, he's an old vaudevillian. So when he came to rehearse, he had the lines written on the back of an envelope just to give him security. And I knew that. And Stanley thought he didn't know the lines and fired him. And I really? went, really, I was really bummed out. Yeah. And of course, then I had Lindsay on the phone. He goes, what is that fucking idiot doing? You know, to poor Willie. I went, no, don't, don't. I know. I'm really upset about it too. I said he was great. He was uh, just the way Stanley is. You know, listen, he wanted to send 
the uh, continuity lady, June, whatever her name was, June something, uh, to uh, Patrick McGee's apart flat to go through his lines for the next day. And I said, Stanley, please don't do that. For God's sake, are you, I mean, look, Patrick is one of Ireland's greatest actors, if not, you know, one of ours. Fantastic, fantastic actor. A fantastic actor. And I said, it's a total insult to send someone over to go through lines with him. And that's like an amateur. Hmm. And and in any case, he won't be in. So, you know, he can be banging all night on the door. (laughs) He goes, well, where's he going to be? I went, he'll be at the pub, of course. (laughs) I went, oh. Oh, okay. So we stopped that one. Um, as that's interesting. I mean, it's in that it is new knowledge uh, to us, as far as our knowledge has taken us. I've, I've read only that uh, Billy Russell had taken ill and was unavailable to do the retribution scene. So, of course, to take your uh, account as truth, no. that's just yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. No, um, I'm afraid not. And and, mm-hmm. and um, Stanley was very quick to move on. He, he was paranoid about actors anyway. Hmm. But about actors, I mean, I was in a very privileged spot because I was really like his cohort, you know, his alter ego or something. And hmm. I'd say, I can't think of anything to do in this scene. Why don't you go have a piss? Because you always come up with something. <laughs> and we'd joke about it. And he would go and have a piss. And he'd come out and he'd go, well, what, what if we... And I went, now we're talking, you know. Right. And um, Interesting. But, you know, when, when you think about it, that um, he wouldn't turn the camera unless it was going to be magic, you know. Right. So, so we, we just, that's what we went for. Every scene had to have something extraordinary going on, whether it was written in it or not. Right. Well, speaking of that, to your point, um, we're aware of roughly 10 scenes that were shot, but uh, not added to the final film. Just wonder if there were any you wish that had been left in, either based on how you felt about your acting in the moment or what you felt it might have offered the film as a whole? You know, honestly, except for that one, I can't really remember anymore now scenes that we um, discarded. What were they? What were some others? Do you know? Yeah, uh, one regarding uh, a scene at the Duke of, uh, I believe it's the Duke of New York pub, and it yeah. was the it was perhaps the first one filmed in Burgess's novel. It described the Droogs bribing three old ladies with drinks so they wouldn't rat out the Droogs uh, the Droogs to the police that they'd nipped out nah, to do a robbery. We never shot it. Never shot it. It was never there. No. No. Stanley just went for the meat. He didn't worry mm-hmm. about. He just carried through the main line. You're the main main cast. The through line of the story, as it were. Yeah. So we go from there. Then, and I must say, that was written. That um, scene in the Duke of New York was written when there's the 
you know, they confront Alex and go, you know, give him the old shit and threaten his leadership. And then when he whacks them or something, whatever he does, I can't remember. I think I crack one of them with a cane. Was it a Warren or, or Georgie boy? <clears throat> anyway, um, he brings them into line and then they go off and he goes, now, Georgie boy, what was that idea of yours? And they go to the health spa, which is where um, Miriam Carlin is. I remember saying to Stanley, Miriam Carlin, Jesus. I mean, I had in my mind, it was this sweet old lady with these puss pots, you know. Right. And he said, I wanted someone who, you know, you think she could give you a real run for your money. Right. In fact, she's a bigger bitch than you are. Mm-hmm. I know. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. An interesting choice, but it works. It obviously worked. That was the right oh, choice. No, no, no. He... You know, he was right. He was right in a lot of stuff. Because I said to him also, you know, we had a, two weeks of going through all these awful movies of concentration camp victims and and uh, German Nazi oh, wow. propaganda to, to use in the Ludovico treatment. Mm-hmm. And, and when I saw the film, I, went, I thought to myself, Jesus, what a cop out! He's, you know, the violence. It's like Stutka's dive bombing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the violence, you know, the personal kind of violence. You know, I, um, I just couldn't believe that he sort of opted out of that one. But you know, of course, the other side of Stanley was that he was a very, very astute producer. Mm-hmm. And he knew, I guess, instinctively felt what people could take and what they couldn't. Mm. And um, interesting, you know, this is why he was so he was so insistent on me, you know, having these fucking lid locks on my eyes because you know he wanted to show something more horrific happening to me than I was doing to anybody else. Right. Makes sense. And it's, and he's sort of right, you know, it makes sort of sense and it does make it more palatable. So you don't forget, this is the first time ever where the leading man in a studio movie was an immoral man. Yes. This has never happened before. Yes. This has never, ever happened before. Indeed. This is before Silence of the Lambs, all these movies. Right. Way before. <laughs> but this is so groundbreaking. So, I mean. And not an, anti, not an anti-hero either, an amoral man, as you say. Yeah. He's a murderer, rapist. Yeah. Not the anti-heroes of the old westerns, etc. No, no. Or, or even a look back in anger, you know, all that right. sort of stuff. Right, right. But the only one that comes close was Richard III. Yeah. And that really, it's a period piece. You don't really think of it in those I terms. I can see that. And it's Shakespeare. Of course. But but he is like Richard III in a way. Yeah. So that's the closest, you know. Great um, analogy. And it, and it is Shakespearean with this language. 
Oh, yes. And that's absolutely. why I decided to do a northern accent. And Stanley had no idea why. <laughs> he goes, that was interesting. Uh, you know, you're doing it that way. I said, you mean the northern accent? He goes, oh, that's what it is. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Interesting, he was tone deaf to the regional dialects, having lived there already for oh, a few years anyway. Uh, there's, a, there's a funny one, um, actually, of him being tone deaf to that. Um, there was a big tracking shot with me in the hospital bed when the head of the hospital comes in with mm-hmm. the minister of the inferior, right? And the head of the hospital is a sir something something, you know been knighted by the queen for services to the medical uh, fraternity. So Stanley, he'd, um, he just picked, I think one of the drivers or stuntmen to do it. And, and literally first, and they'd set this up, it took hours, this long tracking shot coming in and then you'd see me in the bed and, and the guy comes in and he goes, there you go, Minister. There's little Alex. <laughs> and I sort of looked up and started giggling. He goes, God, what, what, what are you, uh, what's the matter? Why I went, did you, did you hear this? This is eminent, you know, um, this eminent surgeon talking like a barrow boy. Uh, that, that, Stanley, what, what are you doing? He went, oh, my God. So then he listened the next right. take. And he went, okay, cut, okay. All right, let's take a break here. <laughs> and of course, then he goes, oh, we're going to have to stop shooting today and we'll recast it. And Anthony Sharp said, oh, I have a friend who could do that. And he went, good, bring him. <laughs> so he brought it. him the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Just yeah. like that. Wow. It, it, yeah. it's, that sounds like Stanley. Yeah. I said that he, was talking about uh, mum and dad and I went my dad should be um, what's his name um, Stone um, Philip Stone Phil Stone, Philip yeah. who I'd seen in um, I think he was in The Contractor too but I loved him as an actor I'd seen him in a lot of David Stone oh yeah 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 great actor yeah you've got to get him he was a lovely guy and I worked with him a few times and um, so he he cast him, you know, right off. So but for some reason, he had a reluctance to Warren. And this went on for months, hmm. you know. Who's playing them? Not cast, not cast. No, no. I've told you. Uh-huh. So, um, and then I was over talking to him about something else and the intercom came came on and margaret his secretary said stanley warren clark's here to see you hmm. and of course i heard it and he'd never mentioned it to me of course right so, um, didn't want to give you the satisfaction yeah he looked at me exactly he looked at me and he goes um do you want to say hi to warren <laughs> i went yeah may as well <laughs> as he's here and, um, cause I was talking to Warren. Now he was also in home with Gilgood and Richardson. 
Oh, and wow. also one of the and with um and the two ladies, uh, Dandy Nichols and Mona Washburn. It was spectacular mm. play that was picked up for Broadway, and mm. they were uh, picked up for Broadway. And Lindsay knew, and Lindsay directly. So Lindsay knew that I wanted Warren to come and do clockwork, and uh, and he kept saying, "Look." If we get the, we're probably going to go to Broadway. Now, if that's the case, you know, you better fucking, well, you better tell him to make his fucking mind up. <laughs> and I said, look, it's nothing to do with me. I can't, you know, what, would somebody rush you about casting? No, I can't rush him. He won't, you know, take any of me. So, um, so I go in to see Warren. We're just saying, hi, this is in the annex at Abbott's Mead and all that. And um, he goes, well, as we're here, um, he goes, Malcolm, do you, should we read the scene? And I went, wow, what a great idea. Okay. So we read the scene. Stanley then asked me to step outside with him. I went, okay. He looks at me and he goes, this guy's great. What shall I do? I said, you go right back in there and you ask him to be in the movie. Say you really want him in the part. Of course. He goes, well, you want me to do that? And I went, yes. He didn't want to do it. He wanted somebody else. He, you know, uh, he wanted yeah. the casting. And I went, Stanley, it's too late for that. Go in and ask him because he's a, he's about to leave for fucking New York in a month. Right. You know, and they, So, of course, he goes in and says, Warren, listen, I, I think you're really great. I, I, I really want you to do this. Uh, <clears throat> Warren goes, oh, oh okay. And, um, you know, then, of course, that night I got a call. He goes, well, that's a fucking joke. Now I've got to re-rehearse re the nights with somebody else in that part. And I went, oh, well, you know, listen, it's good for Warren. Mm -hmm. He goes, what, to be in a Stanley Kubrick movie? <laughs> I went, yes, of course. He's, I said, Lindsay, he's a commercial director. Mm -hmm. Really pointed, like, you're right, not. Right, right. So, I get it. <laughs> I love to tease him <laughs> like that. But um, and he was, I didn't, uh, he was irritated because it meant that they all had to come in and rehearse the next guy. You know, and it is a big thing. It's a yeah. fucking ball. Yeah. You know, so. And, you know, because Stanley had taken so fucking long about it, if he'd done it like three months earlier, we, it could have put it to bed. It wouldn't have even been an issue. Mm -hmm. That would have been it. Well, anyway. It worked out great. Warren was brilliant. And, and he, he was the only one I could sort of relate to. You know, he's, he's a really wonderful actor. You know, and of course, he was in a lucky man all over it. So I'm oh, writing yeah. that the same. Oh thing. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, no question. Uh, Warren was a, just a fantastic actor. I've spotted him yeah. over the years, and, and he was so much fun. I loved him. I I loved him because our hang, you know, waiting, we would be laughing our fucking heads off. You know, he right. he was great at um, impressions. His Eddie Waring was something to be, uh, he'd go, and it's an up and under. 
And, you know, the camera would go up for the ball and he'd go, you just saw a shot of Mrs. Jones's really fine uh, fish and chip shot there on the corner. <laughs> and they'd do this whole fucking thing and we'd be rolling around laughing, you know. He was a good friend. He was a, he was a very good guy, but, you know, he loved to drink. I imagine Warren was a lot of fun if he was one of those guys who could uh, oh, yeah. just he knock and I, him out. He and I, we always had a ball together, you know, and we went off. We did our lucky man, of course. Then it's another story. I'm not going to go into it, but he got the iron door from Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that was the end of it, you know. And, and I, uh, It was because he wouldn't show up. Oh, He wouldn't show up for the... Uh, celebration at the end of a lucky man because they they kind of we didn't we'd run out of money so we had to make it like the cast party mm-hmm. and you know warren went fuck you uh, you're filming i should be paid and he's right i mean um but the fact was you know you have to look at everything from the big picture yeah, and in the big picture, that that is the perfect ending of that film. It couldn't end on a better note. Exactly. No, of course it's the right ending, and he should be there. Well, he's not. I'm not that you really miss him, but he's not there. Even Ralph Richardson turned up to do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and, you know, so Lindsay gave him the iron door, as he said. Warren, iron door. Right. So when he was he was out of any casting of Lindsay Anderson from that time on. And that was it. And they were great friends. too. That's a shame. Yeah. And, and, and Lindsay loved his acting. He was the perfect Lindsay Anderson actor. Mm. Well, many people he would really argue was. that you are. Well, um, you know, it doesn't have to have one. I'm, you know, no, I'm just a few of us. Offering a and, honest you know, compliment. Yeah, no, listen, uh, of course, uh, I was his muse for a, a long time. But, mm-hmm. um, and we were great friends, and I loved him. I miss him every day. But um, I, I have a friend who, uh, a, a, a number of months ago, texted me a link to a clip from This Sporting Life, and he said, you know, I, I'm not really a, into sports. I, you know I don't follow professional sports, but have you ever seen it? I said, oh, come on, are you kidding me? And I told him, I sent him a long text about Lindsay Anderson and, and yourself, and it's the work you guys this did This Sporting together. Life is it's the greatest movie I've ever seen about sports, because yeah. it's not about sports. Right, right. And, of course, David's story, who wrote it, Mm-hmm was a professional rugby player for a time, short time. And, you know, he got the right actor to play it because he was obsessed. And they really, you know, the professionals had had it with him. They whacked him good, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Richard, but but Richard was fucking brilliant in that film, you oh, know. And so good. So good. Yeah, it's one of, one of his absolute best performances. In a career of great performances and and they fell out big time big time uh, never speak blah, blah, blah. and but you know um i can understand that too you know Lindsay could be a real curmudgeon and you know as he said i never apologize uh, okay yeah and also i think he also you know it's the last 
the line. I think if she wore a yellow ribbon, and I think John Wayne says, I never apologize. It's a sign of weakness. And it was a, it's very much a John Ford thing, and mm-hmm. Lindsay was obsessed. And I think that he just thought that was, well, that's why we called our, you know, I did this one-man show about my relationship with him. And we called it Never Apologize. Yes. Have you, ever seen, it? Have you ever seen it? Yeah. I mean, incredible. Right. Really great. Um, I've seen it on the big screen a couple of times. I saw it at Bradford about 20... Really? 20, yeah. I think, well, you, you were there, actually. You and Mike were there. Um, they showed it to... At Bradford? Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw it... In the middle of the Q&A. I said, excuse me, you talk about yourself, but I've got to piss. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I also saw, I saw Never Apologise again about two years ago at the BFI, and you and Mark were there again. Oh, sure my it's... God. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah you were that there that a... night. Oh, that was the night that... Um... Yeah, I, I, I and look, it, it's... Um... Rare that an actor can um, really uh, talk about his relationship, you know, with his mentor, director, whatever you want to call it, you know, Mm. his friendship with a man who was so complex and, but, and so brilliant. And, you know, now I've read things now where they're saying that it is the greatest British film ever made. Yeah, it's hard to argue. It's hard to argue that. Uh, well, that's, I mean, we always thought it was sort of like the perfect film, you know, the ones, but, oh, but, oh, Lucky Man is now getting so many more, um, you know, people in the States, especially that uh, I'm asked to go all the time and talk about it and show it at uh, festivals and stuff like that. That's great. Yeah. It's finally caught up. You know, it's, it's amazing. If you know, took some time, at least in America, to catch on. Uh, yeah. Well, the people that knew, you know, knew they knew how great it was. Right. Right. Uh, but you know how the American a lot audiences of... can be. Not to impugn them, but oh, not the audience. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was so for so long. It was you know space and car chases and explosions that ran the box office, and yeah. sadly, it kind of is now. But with you know, streaming services and other platforms, there's a huge universe of people discovering film. And um, a film like If has finally, I won't say finally recently, but it took its time and then came into its own. And I mean, when I was younger, I never heard people talking about it as much as I have in, you know, the past decade or more. And not one person ever says anything but, oh, Wow, brilliant. Have you ever seen... Incredible. Um, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, having a, a bit of a, a tenuous relationship with the mentor and having to touch upon that, you know, because you've done it more than once. You have been candid about, uh, you know, some of the disappointment that followed uh, with you working on Clockwork with Stanley. And we, we won't, mm-hmm. we won't uh, you know, go into that, but... I personally think it's a testament to your character that you could be so forthright about that. You know, it's the honesty of a fine actor, a true actor who can 
bring that humanness to the discussion of your work? You know, I never spoke to him um, after, I guess, after the movie came out. Now, I was so um, upset and pissed off. I just figured it was better. And then, you know, I was in Ireland doing a, some awful movie, and I heard that Stanley had passed away, and I really kicked myself for not just picking up the phone, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But um, pride is not a good thing, and um, I regret that in a way. Of course, the way I, you know, kind of uh, have this conversation in my head, but it was, well, you know, he could pick up the phone too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and you know, it, it, let, it, it's the crown jewel in my career, you know, it's one of the crown jewels in his, I think it's one of his finest films without a doubt. Absolutely. Without a doubt. It's one of his finest movies. <laughs> So that was the first part of our interview with the one and only Malcolm McDowell. More from Malcolm in the new year, as well as more from Leon Vitali, Gerald Freed, Vincent Labruto, and many other great interviews that we have in the pipeline. And now for a public announcement. The U.S. Library of Congress National Film Registry selects 25 films each year deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and is chosen for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. They also preserve a copy in their vault. In 2018, we asked all our members in the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society to vote for The Shining to get in. We reminded the group throughout the year, and it got in. We did it again in 2020 with A Clockwork Orange, and that got in too. So now, those films are in their special list, in addition to a few other Kubrick films that had already been chosen. Dr. Strangelove was chosen in 1989, 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1991, Paths of Glory in 92, and Spartacus in 2017. Well, we feel that doing one film at a time works best. So this year, we want you to vote for Barry Lyndon. The U.S. Library of Congress National Film Registry accepts public voting for its annual selections. They have a form online, so just search National Film Registry nomination form. So what are you waiting for? If you want to help, and we know you do, get voting. On behalf of our indefatigable producer, Stephen Rigg, I'm your host, Jason Furlong, wishing you all a very happy new year from the team at Kubrick's Universe. And should old acquaintance be forgot, when you're done spilling that bourbon and advocat, raise a glass of Maloco Plus and make a toast to each other. Because you're all fans of one of the most visionary filmmakers and consequential artists of the 20th century. And that puts you in a very special club. A club whose boundaries are as limitless as the universe of Stanley Kubrick. 
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society.